0: Welcome to The Secondary Survey, the Irish pre-hospital podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the February episode of The Secondary Survey. I'm Kevin and tonight myself and Joe Mooney are joined by our first ever guests. Together we'll be exploring hemorrhage control. Our episode will be focusing on major and catastrophic hemorrhages, which according to the World Health Organization, 8 million people were estimated to have died in 2020 from trauma and hemorrhages are thought to account for 35% of these deaths. Closer to home, European data demonstrates that 878 people have died in Ireland from traumatic injuries, accounting for 3.7% of male statistics and 2.1% of the female European statistics. Bleeding deaths are such a concern that in the US, the UK, Canada and some parts of Europe, organisations such as the NAMT have set up programs to teach lay persons the lessons being learned from the military experience over the past twenty odd years. It's a big, big topic, but fortunately we have our guests who will help us navigate this. So I would like to welcome Kieran and Mick. How are you guys?
2: Hey Kevin, how's things?
1: Hey Kevin, how are you? Not too bad, lads. How how are you feeling? Good,
2: good. Excited to spread the word about this now. It's it's an interesting topic that uh, affects a lot of the world, so it should be good to see and bring it to an Irish audience.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I suppose we'll start with a little bit of background. So Kieran, do you want to go first and give us your background?
2: Yeah, Kieran's my name. I've been involved in pre-hospital care at different levels over the past 8 to 10 years. I'm also a Stop the Bleed instructor with a particular interest in this topic for many reasons. I've been looking at this for the past while, I've taught courses like this, when they started off in Ireland, they weren't very popular, I've taught these in Canada as well as a few other countries in the world, and I was just have quite an interest in it, so I thought I'd bring it to yourselves. When I heard the topic was of starting off, I thought, you know, this would be good to bring it to, to an Irish audience and see how we get
1: on. Perfect. And Mick, would you like to introduce yourself, although I'd say most people know you at this stage.
0: Yeah, so <laughs> well, I'm Mick Barry. That's me. I'm in the army. I'm 23 years in the army and 20 of that I've spent in the medical corps. Quite passionate about being a medic, as as you're well aware. And in the army, we've covered various different courses from our tactical emergency medical operative, PHTLS. We have our own military forced aid, our force responder course. We've done and linked in with the likes of WEMC and we've done the wilderness EMT course. We teach the basic tactical emergency care course and so on. So there's a, a quite range of, of, of exposure there. I've done seven tours of duty to various different places in the world with the UN and NATO. I'm currently a student in UCD, undertaking my advanced paramedic course. So that's me in a nutshell.
1: Perfect. And I mean that we we will be bowing to your knowledge now on this as well. And of course we've got our resident Joe. How are you Joe?
3: Hey, Kevin? I'm really looking forward to this episode. This is going to be a cracking episode. There's such a lot in it. It's such a wide-ranging subject from the basic first aid, from when I joined the voluntary organisation, when I joined the Order of Malt in 2004, up to the present day, the changes that has taken place up to now, where back in 2004, you know, tourniquets were bad and their arm falls off if you put it on, their leg falls off and you put it on. Fantastic to see our EMT colleagues getting tourniquets now in the next round of CPGs. And then rollout throughout England, and mainly with the Stop the Bleed campaigns as well. So it's going to be an interesting discussion, and I'm really looking forward to it. And thanks to the lads for being to coming on. I know you have busy lives, and we really appreciate it for coming off to the second survey.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I second that. I mean, your knowledge is going to help us, and hopefully, we can get this very important topic some more kind of light in Ireland as it stands. So, if I was to ask you guys each, what would be your take-home points that you would like the audience to take home from this? What would you What would you say? Just one thing each.
2: So for me, the important thing that I like people to take on from this is what is a catastrophic bleed, what do we do for it, using the new kind of skills that we have available to from EMT and above, from tourniquets, hemostatic dressings, and to know when to use it and why we shouldn't be afraid of certain things.
0: Okay,
1: yeah, that's cool,
0: Mick. I always think covering the basics best first, you know, so going back to our peep, how to actually recognize, manage a blade initially. So
3: once we get those basics covered, everything else then can evolve from that, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Joe?
3: I'm a big believer in TXA and the benefits it can bring to our patients. So I believe that TXA is a pre-hospital medication and we should be using it for any suspected major hemorrhage if the vital signs are anyway abnormal for the patient. So I walk off a very simple principle that if there's a young person and they've had trauma and we arrive and they're tachycardic and they remain tachycardic, they're bleeding until otherwise proven. If we can't see it, then obviously we're going down the route of internal bleeding. TXA is a pre-hospital drug and I'm a big fan of it. So yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think just kind of on that topic of what we give, what we don't give, I think there's a big discussion over what the best uh, resuscitative fluid is for bleeding. And as far as I can tell, the best thing we can do is try and keep as much of the patient circulation in circulation. So if we can stop a bleed as quick and as efficiently as we can, it's going to benefit, I think, you know, so leading from that, Joe, would you like to discuss maybe the historic first aid thinking?
3: Yeah, thanks, Kevin. So, yeah, I think back again when I joined the Order Malt in 2004 and our basic first aid course and then our old first responder course was just stop the bleeding, put the arm up, we'll put direct pressure on and just keep wrapping bandages and bandages And If it keeps bleeding, just keep wrapping the bandages. And there was very little further treatment then options for the basic first aid or even the EMT back then. And then there was a big kind of fear around tourniquets. And if you put them on, you know, uh, when you release them, the iron will fall off or they'll die of blood poisoning when you release the toxins. And I still think there is that element of fear around tourniquets. And I think it, it is getting less and less, but I think we shouldn't be afraid of them. I think they are an absolute life-saving piece of equipment for the handful of times I've put them on patients. It makes a massive amount of difference. Yes, they are extremely painful. So if you're going to put one on, make sure you have the Pentrox or the antinox ready and give them some good, strong pain relief. But absolutely. And I think we're going away really from the, just keep putting bandages on to now the tourniquets to the pressure points. And then with the advanced stuff now is with the TXA as well then.
1: Yeah, it's funny, you should actually bring up pressure points, an article that I found while I was researching for this. And what it said was that they've kind of gone away from the thinking of the pressure points, because even though you'll be putting pressure on one of the main arteries, there's so much collateral blood supply that it's not going to occlude the bleed, essentially, it's not going to slow down the blood getting to the bleed so i think that that's where the tourniquets are coming in so based on that and the historic kind of first aid thinking kieran why don't you tell us a little bit about stop the bleed and what the thinking is over there
2: sure so stop the bleed foundation this was established in the us in 2015. It was established by the American College of Surgeons and their Committee on Trauma. So basically what they looked at was they looked at the stats, facts and figures from the military and right back years and years, but particularly with emphasis on the conflicts in the Middle East. So looking at Afghanistan, Iraq, around 2012, and we've seen a lot of studies and stats coming from there saying soldiers are losing their lives from IED blasts, from massive trauma. And we know that exsanguination is the leading cause of death, if it's present. So we thought, what can we do? Back then, they were carrying in little wooden dells and cravats and makeshift bandages made of rags, pretty much. Not quite medieval, but we're using basic first aid stuff on advanced and catastrophic wounds. So come around 2012, we start seeing the introduction of these commercial grade tourniquets. And there was still a bit of kind of fear, a bit of kind of misconstrued evidence and stuff coming out. But long story short, from these conflicts, we've seen a drastic increase in lives saved by simple procedures like a tourniquet. So what they've done was they've thought, well, if it works over there, why can't it work over here? So they kind of brought a home back Western. And unfortunately, due to the likes of events such as school shootings, the likes of this stuff, we've seen the introduction of these Stop the Bleed kits in public places, particularly schools, airports, arenas, shopping centers. And what the ethos of these guys was, out of tragedy gives a chance to save life so tragedy equals a life saving opportunity and unfortunately the circumstances are a bit bleak but we've seen lives saved in schools theatres malls by similar like AED cabinets we'll see these in our shopping centres we know that we have to have first aid kits available to public they've got these over there as well mounted in these kind of wall cabinets and it's a tourniquet it's pressure bandages it's hemostatic resins, and they've gone to save so many lives so as a part of that then we look at the likes of the military the tactical combat casualty care side of things they've updated their guidelines and together they kind of work to share data and see how it's progressing and see how many lives are saved. So it's swept across the US and it saved countless lives. The courses are free. With COVID now, they've even gone online. But what we used to do was you'd go down to your local community center almost and you'd book onto a course for free couple of hours long they teach you how to control massive hemorrhaging using the likes of the israeli bandage using tourniquets and it really has gone to save lives particularly when we're looking at the likes of firearms in the states in canada we see an increase in ownership of firearms we see the likes of unfortunately gun crime and it's gone to save a lot of lives whether it's malicious circumstances or whether it's accidental discharge of a firearm etc so when we've seen the stop the bleed success in the us it's kind of swept across neighboring nations like canada obviously we've got more kind of firearms access over there too we see then it kind of sweeping across Europe, particularly into the UK, where we see, unfortunately, a lot of knife crime. So looking at the likes of London, big cities in the UK, we've seen a massive increase in knife crime. So they kind of looked at the likes of the US Stop the Bleed program and they thought, well, if it works for them, why can't it work for us? So we see the Manchester bombings, we see other acts of terrorism. And with these, we see a lot of blast injuries, a lot of shootings, stabbings. The leading cause of death in this one is exsanguination. So what can we do to stop that? We keep the blood in the body where it belongs. So one particular thing we'll see is a foundation started in the UK, not exactly Stop the Bleed, but it's called Control the Bleed. So there's a gentleman called Daniel Bard, and in 2016 or 2017, he unfortunately lost his life due to a stabbing. So his mother, Lynn, started a campaign, very similar to Stop the Bleed, in terms of how can we, first of all, educate young people not to commit crimes, but if for some reason, whether it's accidental or intentional, somebody becomes stabbed or shot or whatever reason, they're losing a lot of blood you know what can we do how can we save it so we see this kind of similar program sweeping across the uk where we're hoping to get public access kits like an aed like a first aid kit but massive catastrophic hemorrhage controlling kits into whether it's shops police stations etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's been taken on board and it's been supported by a lot of the nhs ambulance trusts which is fantastic to see so ultimately our goal is to save lives and to create awareness if, unfortunately, someone could get shot or stabbed, well, let's give somebody the empowerment and the skills to save it. So that's the kind of ethos, and that's where Stop the Bleed is coming to. And like Joe had said, you kind of started off with our pad and bandage those years ago. And we've all been there, with it maybe a voluntary or a private body, and you go to your training, and they tell you pad and bandage, elevation. But sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's just not good enough, and we need to follow a stepwise approach and up the ante to these tourniquets, hemostatic dressings, and more advanced care. And that's the whole idea of the Stop the Bleed program
1: that's brilliant joe you want to jump in there
3: yeah absolutely spot on kieran i totally agree that daniel bird foundation the hashtag control the bleed on twitter for anyone who's interested in it they've actually placed over three thousand of these public access stop the bleed kits and 300 of them in public access bleed cabinets so very similar to an aed where defibrillators are held in the boxes these are stop the bleed kits for the public use and it comes with instructions and it comes with how to use it it's a fantastic piece of equipment And I do know that one of our colleagues, Jonathan, who works down the southeast as the community engagement officer, he actually has one and he carries it in his car. And then there was also a trade union in the east of the country up in Dundalk, and they actually bought a number of them and placed them around there as well. So they are becoming more and more popular in the Republic of Ireland, and hopefully we will see an increased amount of them in the coming years.
1: Absolutely. Joe, would you like to tell us about what's in a Stop the Bleed kit?
3: Yeah. So in the kit, there's a couple of pairs of gloves. There's instructions on how to use all the equipment. There's a trauma shears. There's a hemostatic dressing. There is a tourniquet and there is more gauze as well. So it's really about packing the wound if it's a stab wound and if it's an arm or limb injury with catastrophic hemorrhage, there's the tourniquet there as well and the instruction on how to use them as well. So it's a real kind of take it off the wall, do what the instructions say and hopefully save the life.
1: I think that we do need to talk about the fact that there are two different types of catastrophic or major hemorrhage that we might see, and that would be compressible and non-compressible sites. Mick, you're in the military. You've got a lot of access to all the latest tech and understanding on this. Would you like to explain to us the difference between the compressible and non-compressible sites?
0: So the big difference with the compressible is we can stop that bleed with direct pressure or that of a tourniquet. So we apply a tourniquet and that can stop the limb hemorrhage. So for instance, you're below the knee amputation. If we have some of those sites where it's not necessarily able to apply pressure, be in the junctional area, be it high up in the femoral triangle or up high in the neck, it's something that we may need to pack that wound and apply pressure in that format.
1: Right, so Nick, um would you give us the military perspective on hemorrhage control?
0: So in the military, the idea of CABC and that initial big C for the catastrophic hemorrhage, it's not a new concept in the military. It's something that's been around for quite a long time and application of tourniquets in the civilian setting, have sort of dropped in and dropped out of fashion. But they've always been in fashion in in the military, and especially from the conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan. And then as that sort of conflict rolled onto our streets, then it was quite evident then that they're needed in the pre-hospital environment. And a small little example is in the Boston bombing at the Marathon, there was 27 tourniquets applied, and at that time there was 16 to 17 limb amputations, and there was 300 people that were injured at that time and there was 1% mortality, and that was just a death that was going to happen because of the nature of the injuries, but there was 27 preventable deaths stopped. So in other words, by the application of a tourniquet, the external hemorrhage, it's a preventable death, and the application of a tourniquet saved those people's lives. But something to be aware of, the effect in the pre-hospital application of a tourniquet, it's not always 100%, so it remains high somewhere between 88 and 98%. But there is some degree of failure to be expected. And the considerations of putting on the tourniquet, I'm going to start off with more like the end point. And although you talk about rationale and the whole lot, I think the first point would have to be is your decision making. And the decision making of not using the tourniquet or waiting too long, saying, oh, is it bleeding? Isn't it bleeding? Is this catastrophic? while the patient is still continuing to bleed out. So been able to make that decision and not wait too long. And then when you do apply a tourniquet, it's where do you apply it and make sure that you put it on tight enough. And if it's not tight enough, make sure you give it that extra torn then as well. And please don't remove the tourniquet or loosen the tourniquet. It stays on in place. And especially when we're in the pre-hospital environment in Ireland, we're definitely no more than two hours away from a hospital. So for me, it's something that can stay on and stay in place then as well our simple little sort of rationale of why would we use a tourniquet and the quite obvious one would be the likes of a limb amputation and if there's a catastrophic hemorrhage present so what we would do is we apply the tourniquet and we would cite a tourniquet as distal as possible to the wound so in the military perspective we're normally talking about go high and tight but that's true the nature of the injuries that could be a blast injury That's where the tissue, the damage, it's so extent, it's safer to go up high and tight. And as well as you're in that tactical environment, it's just about stopping the bleed. In the pre-hospital environment, we have that little bit more time to expose and examine. And that's why I'm saying go back to the basics: Expose and examine the wound, have a look, and then you can cite your tourniquet then properly. And when we're citing our tourniquet, based on the position statement of the Royal College of Surgeons Edinburgh in 2017, There's four key things that we want to do. So that site just immediately proximal to the wound. But when you're putting it on, put it on as rapidly as possible. And when you're applying it, please try to apply it to bare skin. If it goes on clothing or so on, it has the potential to slip. And therefore, it can become ineffective. And the other point then as well, after placing it thisly as possible to the wound, is apply it tightly enough that it stops the hemorrhage. But this is the key point. Make sure you stop all the blood flow that goes down. So if we just cut off venous return and there's still an arterial blood supply, one of the complications of tourniquet use is it can cause compartment syndrome. So you're still feeding an arterial blood supply and be it you're actually losing blood into that space, if you're just blocking the venous return, it can cause the compartment syndrome. So the way to check for that is go distal to the tourniquet and assess for a pulse. So if there's a pulse, it's telling you the tourniquet is not on tight enough so if you have to increase the tension by applying another torn or so, well then please do that. Otherwise, you'll cause more of a neurovascular injury than in the patient. With every organization, they'll carry a certain amount of tourniquets or very different hemorrhage control equipment. In the military, as it just so happens, I was actually on a, a committee there and it's all done and dusted where the Irish Army's actually gone through a tender process where they have selected an IFAC, an individual forced aid equipment. And it's very similar components of what was described there in the Stop the blade kit. And each soldier will then carry that equipment. So if I was deploying overseas and I'm the medic and I'm out with a platoon, I myself will be carrying six tourniquets and various amount of emergency bandage dressings or hemostatic dressings, and each soldier out there will have that. So ready available to me, there's actually a high number of tourniquets and high number of the hemostatic dressings and hemostatic gauze and so on. But when we were doing our little bit of research on what sort of equipment that we would like or suggest, what we did is we used a meta analysis that was carried out in December in 2019 by the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. And they assessed 25 different commercial tourniquets and the whole lot, and they ranked them in order. So if it's a particular piece that if you are interested in, in selecting any particular tourniquet, it provides you the evidence there of what they recommend and based on their guidelines, then as well. Other different things is when you're monitoring your patient. So let's say I started with C, A, B, C. So as you've gone down through your airway, you're breathing, at C, reassess your tourniquet. Check for the circulation to make sure that the hemorrhage has arrested and there is no other life-threatening bleeding. And if you do notice that the bleeding does continue, well then don't be afraid to reassess and tighten up the tourniquet. Again, other considerations once you apply a tourniquet, and this is not the, the classic sort of amputated limb, is expect to use them from the medullary aspect of the bone. So the blood will come out of the veins and uh, and arteries if we compress that it won't but we can't compress bone so it's expected that we will see blood potentially ooze out of it so it's a site for us to dress then as well and then typically this can be dressed with a good hemostatic dressing i.e the likes of your emergency bandage your Ola's bandage and so on so what we want to do is we want to address all open wounds. And as we see that the triage CBT has changed for us, a fantastic change, I must say. But the application of a tourniquet now in a triage setting automatically brings our patients then into that category of P1 or immediate. And also, if we are treating a patient who has an amputation, then we make sure that we do bring that amputated part or limb to the hospital with us in that sterile cold condition then as well.
1: Brilliant. And just on that, Mick Joe touched on it briefly. So obviously enough, tourniquets are extremely painful to put on. So what would be the military's recommendation for pain relief and pain control when talking about tourniquet use?
0: So pain management. It depends on the condition of the patient. So we do have uh, the options to us, basically, of that morphine, the fentanyl, the ketamine. But again, in that severely shocked patient from blood loss and so on, we don't want to be giving him any of the morphine. The negative inotropic effects there, it's going to drop his blood pressure. It's going to make this patient a, a lot worse. So typically in the severe patient demonstrating hemorrhagic shock, if we are going to give him any pain management, typically we will lean more towards the ketamine. So with the ketamine, we have the positive. cardiovascular and blood pressure effects and will manage his pain then quite well. If the patient is not in a position to be monitored, sometimes what we can do is we can use the fentanyl lollipop. And the small little trick to that is what you do is you tape the fentanyl lollipop to the patient's hand. You give them the instructions and there they are. They're having a go on the fentanyl lollipop. And if they get to a particular level that it causes unconsciousness, well, then the hand falls out of the mouth and then therefore they don't overdose. So there are different strategies depending on the tactical environment that you're in also. Oh absolutely, that's a very interesting thing about the
1: fentanyl lollipop, although I hope they're easier to open than a jug of
3: juice. <laughs> <laughs> fentanyl lollipops are a fantastic pain relief. In my days I seen them being used as a care assistant and I have to say a fantastic piece of equipment. Obviously we don't have them pre-hospital for ourselves, but the other option there does exist and would be great obviously as Mika saying in the military and the things. It's a fantastic piece of equipment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose on that, now just Mick, you've known, obviously enough, you're very involved with the research side of military medicine. Has there been any recorded loss of life or loss of limb from use of a tourniquet?
0: Oh, that's quite a difficult one. So I can neither confirm or deny. But what I can say is, based on the evidence, and there is evidence out there, and Colonel Nigel Toy of the British Army, he's a vascular surgeon and he served in Afghanistan. He actually done a fantastic webinar on traumacare.uk. Sorry for the plug, but it is what it is. And from his experience, he actually gave out the evidence. And it depends on the severity of the injury. So that sort of skews the study a bit. But 90% of the patients who had tourniquet applied and had that catastrophic hemorrhage had their limb intact for up to six hours of use of a tourniquet. And even further he goes into for 50%, kept her limbs intact up to 18 hours. But we talk about some of the other damages and things that can happen. So when they're put on, they're put on to save a patient's life. And there can be the potential for a neurovascular injury. And that's something that we do expect if it's left on for a long time. But the safety aspect we have in Ireland, I don't care if you're on the top of Aquila, there's a chopper coming to you. In the two-hour window, the potential for any sort of serious injury or loss of limb is quite low in Ireland. One of the more recent studies I actually read there was it was actually an Israeli soldier. He was shot in the leg and had a catastrophic hemorrhage and actually had a tourniquet on for greater than 24 hours by the time he actually got to hospital for whatever it was that was happening with himself. And he had no neurovascular compromise in his limb and walked out of hospital, funny enough. So I hope that answers your question.
1: Yeah, it does actually. After just Googling there quickly and I actually found this. So based on what you were saying there, actually, it says... This paper is called Hemorrhage Control, <laughs> ironically. And one of the things that it said here was that a study of wounded servicemen and civilians from a recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan demonstrated a 92% survival rate of casualties who to had tourniquet applied to extremity injuries. However, no casualties survived after suffering an uncontrolled extremity hemorrhage in which no tourniquet was used of the 308 limbs that had tourniquets applied there was only 10 nerve palsies noted with four at the level of the tourniquet most of these reported palsies were resolved within hours and not a single amputation was performed as a result of tourniquet use now I find that very interesting because I'm from a generation where when I was being taught my first aid stuff, like friends, was still on the television. And they used to tell us horror stories of, you know, you put it on and someone's arm will drop off within, you know, an hour if if you're not careful. So it's very reassuring to read those things. But of course, tourniquets are only part of the problem. So the the tourniquet is good for catastrophic hemorrhage coming out of a compressible site. So we have non-compressible hemorrhage as well. So what do we recommend for that? That, as far as I can see, would be wound packing. Is that right, Mick?
0: Yeah, and we have a variety of different wound packing and different techniques as well. There, it was actually one of the first papers I actually ever read. Uh, I was actually over in limerick and they'd done a research literature day. And it was actually compared in combat gauze to normal gauze. And in the study, it actually says because you spend so much time flapping around and opening the packaging and how you treat the combat gauze, the patient is still bleeding out, where if you just pull out the normal gauze and pack it nice and deep into the wound and apply that pressure you'll actually achieve the same effect. You, you know, so that it really is a, a big point. And all the evidence actually says that, that there's, there's not a great deal of difference, although it can work and achieve hemostasis. Once you apply a pack of wound and you have to get in, the, the object of this is, let's say it's, it's a gunshot wound to the leg or even that of a stabbing. There's a cavity in the leg. So it's not like you're compressing just the top site, it's actually right through the cavity. So you have to fill that cavity. So you have to really pack it in deep and then apply pressure. And this is the failing point of most people. They understand, okay, I'll put in the combat gauze or or even the normal gauze and then just put a dressing over it. You have to apply that pressure. So in most of the guidance, it's anywhere from three to eight minutes of direct pressure on that site to achieve hemostasis. Even though you may have done a great job of packing, if you don't put that direct pressure then on top of that, it will be ineffective and your patient will still continue to bleed and obviously deteriorate for, for you.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it really is kind of a fresh approach to an old idea. So, from what I remember of my... First aid course many, many years ago. The idea behind the way we put pressure on a wound with a non adherent dressing was that the blood cells and the platelets will get caught in the gauze and basically form a clot. So, what we're doing now is because obviously an external approach to hemorrhage control, when we're talking about these non compressible sites, what we're actually doing is we're actually pushing that gauze in against the bleeding vessel to cause that aggregation of a clot. Would that be basically a
0: Yeah. In a nutshell, yes. Again, if you imagine if you try compress a cavity, you're going to spread it out further. So again, you need to fill that void. And I must make the point of these cavities are either on the limbs or in the junctions. So this isn't something that we're going to, we're not going to start packing a cavity in the abdomen or in the retroperitoneal space or so on, because that's such a huge cavity. Mm you know so this is more the junctional areas or the limb areas and at that junctional area it still does count for up high on the neck at the carotid stent as well you know which can be quite a difficult site to control hemorrhage
1: yeah. like it's actually interesting to bring up the neck because i think as far as i'm aware in civilian practice in ireland certainly at the moment that's not recommended and it was about airway compromise but obviously enough you're coming better from the military approach. I think that it's also interesting just to point out here with non-compressible sites that the glutes are actually considered a non-compressible site as well. And what brings that to my mind now is that the last major hemorrhage I actually had was a young lad who was stabbed in the buttocks and the wound was deceptively small. And the handover to me was that the patient was, after getting a small superficial wound, wasn't too much to it but i think that we have to remember with penetrating wounds especially in non-compressible sites is that it can be deceptive would you agree with that
0: yeah i do and like it's a part of the history taken if somebody got stabbed was it a blade what you know was it a screwdriver how deep or how long was the blade and then it goes back to the basics of anatomy if you're aware of the anatomy then you can start saying okay well this vessel runs down this way or this vessel is this deep it may have nicked it so even in the likes of when we're doing our, say, our primary survey and we're running down and say that big quick trauma sweep. When we're doing circumferential checking of the likes of the limbs, we're actually measuring the difference of the limbs. So let's say, for instance, I move down one tie and I circumferentially check it. And then I notice the next one is quite ticker. You know, it's it's quite large. And again, I'm talking not about fractures, I'm talking about hemorrhage. Maybe somebody got shot in the toy and nicked the vessel and they're actually bleeding into that compartment. So there is no external hemorrhage, but they're bleeding into that compartment. Yeah. You know, so so that'll bring you down to what would you do with the like some of these wounds, be it you go in and you start packing or the use of the application, the tourniquet in as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And an interesting one as well with that is that I was having this discussion with a doctor about a chest wound that we brought in, and it was a guy who got stabbed, but he had a quite large hemothorax, but the stab wound looked quite dry. But what actually happened was there was a kind of like, I think we used to call it the Z tracking for injection. So because your man had turned, his muscles and his tissue had flexed, he got stabbed, But then when they returned to a normal spot, the actual puncture wound to the chest wall was actually hidden underneath the tissue. And the entrance wound was actually quite a bit back from the injury. So I think that we do need to be aware of the anatomy and aware of how the anatomy works, you know. Joe, would you like to come in on this?
3: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about the anatomy there. I had a a case a while ago where there was was a stabbing in the neck. And just remember the zone 1, zone 2 and zone 3 of the neck. Zone 1 being from the clavicle to the cricoid cartilage. Zone 2, the region between the cricoid cartilage and the angle of the mandible. And then zone three, basically above the mandible, below the ear. And obviously there is a lot of anatomy and physiology and structures that I won't go into now, but like there's some major arteries, some major veins, some major nerves, and just having a rough idea of where they are can really point you in a way of this person is really, really sick. If it's a stab that's above the clavicle and it's downwards, inferiorly, it could be into the top of the lung as well. So you're not just dealing now with a stab wound, you're also dealing with the pneumothorax. So I think having a good understanding of the anatomy physiology... And then Zone 1s, Zone 2 and Zone 3, if they are on the internet, if people want to have a a good look at them there. But I do remember, you know, you can have even a small stab wound in the neck can be extremely serious.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mick, you
3: want to come in on that?
0: Yeah, so just when we're talking about some of those sites and we're talking about non-compressible, so we do have that pelvic binder and the pelvic binder does keep the pelvic cordial stable it doesn't compress the pelvis and stop blood flow but it stops it from bleeding any further but one of the adjuncts that we do have in the military i've yet to see it in civilian practice and maybe some of the critical care may evolve onto it and so on but it's the use of an abdominal aortic junctional tourniquet and basically what that is it's a plate that would sit at your back and on your abdomen and when you seal it up together you can compress it like a blood pressure cuff and when you compress it what it basically does is it adds your descending aorta so if you had got major hemorrhage below that site it's a, an additional adjunct to actually you may have bilateral below the knee amputations and typically with the likes of those injury patterns you would expect to have an unstable pelvis so what you're doing is you're going to reduce the amount of blood flow that's actually going in that direction then as well so they're one of the adjuncts that be slightly different and more advantageous to have in those sort of situations then as well.
1: I think we must have hit some record here, guys, because we're after going through an entire hemorrhage control thing without really mentioning TXA, so (laughs) so I'm pretty sure that, that must be a record, right? But obviously enough, TXA has been proven fairly substantially that it's beneficial in trauma and particularly in hemorrhage control. I think we should remind people, though, that there is a time window on that that the the injury has to be within, I believe, it's three hours. Would I be wrong?
3: No, you're correct. Yeah, three hours. Yeah, so
1: three hours because that won't be as effective and it can actually cause bleeding. I believe, Mick, you heard that there was a paper out from the matter, I
0: think, was it? So, there's two papers I actually want to talk about about TXA. And one of them was, it's actually a fascinating one. And it was D- DeGore himself, Mr. Ian Roberts. He's not the title author in the paper, but it's the main man who was involved in the Crash 2, Crash 3 woman trial, and so on. And this was on the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of intramuscular TXA. And even though it was quite a small study, the cohort were patients that had severe blood loss and had received an initial one gram of TXA and then another bolus of TXA. And what they found was the serum level of intramuscular TXA in the shock patient still got absorbed. And it got to the serum level where it was in its therapeutic effect within 4 to 11 minutes. And if we're going to give the gram of TXA intravenously, it's anywhere between over the ten to 15 minutes. So the idea behind this study then is that eventually it could potentially lead to where the patient can't have IV access or the practitioner can't give IV access, that potentially it could be given in another route then as well. On the military side, actually, the British Army and the American Army have actually been using this in a mini jet or like a an EpiPen and a pen style format, and they've actually they've been given it. There's I haven't seen much evidence on how they're get on with it, but it it is something that is also being used in the military. And just there, I came across it today. It was literally only dropped this month. And it's actually a paper in Ireland. And what it is, it's transemic acid for the major trauma patient in Ireland. And it was a retrospective cohort study over a five-year period, 2013 to 2018. And we'd be all familiar with Fran O'Keefe in the matter. And this was published in the World Journal of Emergency Medicine. And they had a quite a large cohort, and they whittled it down to basically it was a hypotensive patient who was managed with a blood transfusion. And the ironic thing, and it's not pleasing reading, is that only 56% of the patients in their study received TXA. And a similar study that's referenced in the paper in the UK is only 68%. And these, again, are patients who are demonstrated as being in severe blood loss, who are hypertensive and are in shock, you know. And again, that time frame crosses over some CPGs and the introduction of the TXA. But it's something that should be on our mindset then as well, that patients that are disunwell in the trauma scenario... Definitely that TXA is one of those medications that we're going to be considered and given. Going back to the force paper I mentioned there, they actually talk about the pharma dynamics of TXA. Basically, what you have is you have that three hour window. So to get it in and every 20 minutes, it goes down by 10%. So if you give it to your patient straight away, it's going to work, let's say, for instance, 100%. So as you go down 20 minutes down, it's 90% effective and so on. Because what we want to do is we want to hold on to that clot. So we're stopping those clots and the fiber mesh all breaking down. So what we want to do is we want to get in with the TXA before the body starts breaking it down. So if we go to that three hour window, well, then that's where the body has started breaking that down. And it's the TXA is not going to be effective.
1: Great. Which is going back to what Joe always says about TXA, which is what, Joe?
3: It's a pre-hostile medication.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> and you're going to get that on a poster, right? And, uh, <laughs> but I think that what we need to do is we do need to remind the audience, because we're wrapping up now, is that we're talking here about major catastrophic hemorrhage. And I think it'd be fitting for Kieran maybe just to give us a rundown on good first aid practice for your average hemorrhage or your severe hemorrhage right up to the major hemorrhage. Would you like to do that, Kieran?
2: Yeah. So I suppose looking at hemorrhages, the key thing to remember, lads, is when pressure doesn't work, apply more pressure. So looking at it from a basic point of view, right up to a catastrophic point of view, unless you're walking into a scene and it's like something out of Sweeney Todd or the Chainsaw Massacre, we want to go in what's called a stepwise approach. So you see somebody with a wound to, let's say, a forearm. If you can control that with asking them to put direct pressure on it, while you get a bandage prep, padding bandages, that works all the best. If we can follow our PEEP approach by putting pressure, elevation, expose, examine, and posturing them in the correct posture, that's fantastic. If that doesn't work, though, we're going to go up in the ante. And obviously obviously following our CPGs, following guidance, that if we can't control it with a with a bandage, put a second bandage on. If it's still not working, up it then if you're authorized to do so with pressure points. Again, up the road, then if it's still not under control, try multiple bandages, up with the pressure points, up with the to tourniquets, etc. etc. And call in for more resources. However, the key thing to remember is if your basic stuff isn't working, if you're authorized to do so and you're equipped, if you walk into a wound and it's absolutely in your face, barn door, catastrophic hemorrhage, don't be afraid to use the likes of our tourniquets. Don't go straight in to use a tourniquet for a, like Joe said earlier on, a cut fingernail or, you know, something small. If we can go in, pad and bandage, control it, all the best. If not, though, the key thing is not to be afraid to use what's in your kit, in your arsenal, if you're qualified and trained to do so and you're competent.
1: Okay, that's absolutely perfect. And I think what you've done is reinforced a point here that while it's been a brilliant conversation, I've really enjoyed talking to you guys. The big thing is, is that we're looking at a lot of the international experience. Anybody who's listening, you do have to follow your local guidelines and your local protocols. But I hope that we've managed to allay some of your fears around using tourniquets. As Tiarana said, if you find a bleed that is absolutely horrific and scary, to see i've only seen about three or four of them and i can guarantee you you'll know them when you see them don't be afraid to use your tourniquet if you're a paramedic or ap and it's a junctional wound or it's a non-compressible site don't forget you can wound pack get that txa in and what we have to remember in the pre-hospital we're, we're good at it to some extent years ago we used to call things stay and play and load and go and what we have to remember is that physiology doesn't stop for transport So that pathological process, that physiological process of bleeding is going to continue. So we keep that patient warm, make a very good attempt at getting bleeding control, give some pain relief if needed. We don't scoop and run. We don't load and go. We use forward momentum. We get that patient under control. We try and get that patient as stabilized as we can as we move. And I think that sometimes that gets forgotten when we use little phrases like load and go or scoop and run or stay and play. But what we want is that forward momentum to keep that patient moving forward towards what they need, which is a surgeon. Would you guys agree?
3: Absolutely, Kevin. Yeah, 100%. Definitely, yeah. Get them to definitive care. Yeah.
1: And uh, any kind of words of wisdom before we go, guys?
3: No, just to thank you, Anna, Michael. Fantastic episode. And I really appreciate them coming on as, as our first ever guest speakers on the secondary survey. Fair play, lads, and thanks. Again. You. Thanks for having us, lads. No problem. It was an absolute
1: pleasure, lads. And I haven't had to cram like I've had to cram for this uh, because of you guys (laughs) (laughs) since my AP course. So, (laughs) So thanks for keeping us on our toes. And thanks for a very entertaining conversation. So we're going to leave you here. What we would remind everybody is that everything that we've talked about is discussion always follow your protocols and your guidelines for your local services and we hope that you enjoyed this conversation if you have anything to add or any questions or comments for us to cover or for any of the lads to deal with later feel free to get in touch with us but i hope you enjoyed this episode
3: take care and stay safe all the best
0: all information recorded is solely in the opinion of the presenters and their guests they do not represent the views of the employers nor associated with any establishment or service provider. Content is not to be taken as medical advice and should not affect established guidelines and protocols. Thank you for listening. Take care.